All right, well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys again this morning. Great to see all the familiar faces and to be back in this pulpit and back in the book of Joel this morning. There's a question I was once asked, randomly it seemed, and it was this, saved from what? What are we saved from? That was asked of me by a complete stranger one night on a Sunday night at Grace Community Church. I'd been attending there for a few months uh, when after an evening service, I was approached by a tall and strange fellow. He had sun-beaten tan skin, all-white clothing, and topped off with short black vertical hair. And he first asked me with no, no introduction, just comes right up to me and says, if I were a person on the street and asked you what I needed to do to become a Christian, what would you tell me? Now, taken aback by an evangelistic question on campus at, at the church, I sputtered and stammered my way through Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, unimpressed, this tall, white and black figure quickly responded, saved from what? What are we saved from? And still on my heels, I remember responding, uh, sin? <laughs> right? And uh, this stranger proceeded to encourage me to fill that statement out, that we are not saved from sin, but from sin's penalty. In our evangelism, he said, we must not only explain how to be saved, but what we need to be saved from. He then introduced himself, encouraged me to be an avid evangelist, and walked away. Later, this man, who is named John, would become a friend of mine, and I started participating in the evangelism ministry at Grace Community Church, and there were a few times where I got to spread the gospel alongside him. He himself, John himself, was saved by a street evangelist, somebody who just out of the blue shared the gospel with him, and he was saved like that. And so John had committed himself to the same calling, uh, sharing the good news with strangers on the street. But John also took it upon himself to evangelize Christians at Grace Community Church from time to time, such as myself, helping us grow and be more accurate in our gospel understanding and our gospel presentation. And that key question, saved from what? Saved from what? That is a great question. And friend, have you considered deeply what it is exactly that you have been saved from? Are you saved from sin? No, you're saved from sin's penalty. But what is that? Friend, if you are a believer in Christ, you've been saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Just a few synonyms of wrath to help you get an idea of what it means. Anger. Outrage. Rage. Fury. This is the wrath of God. The wrath of God really is twofold. First, there is the wrath of God that he displays visibly on earth. Up to this point in history, there have been many foretastes of such wrath. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Forever examples of the wrath of God on an unrighteous people. <clears throat> there comes a time of wrath at the conclusion of the day of the Lord, which we have been seeing in the book of Joel, where God will pour out his wrath on all his enemies, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and Revelation 14 speak of this wrath as being in a cup. God has a cup of wrath that he is filling up, waiting to pour it out on peoples of the earth who have rejected him and who run after unrighteousness. Now this is the first 
notion of God's wrath. The second aspect of it, the second notion of God's wrath is worse. It's an eternal wrath that God will mete out forever on his enemies. It is the lake of fire spoken of in Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15. Anyone who has already died in history past or who will die before the day of the Lord on earth, though they might miss his wrath on earth, they will still face this eternal wrath. They will still burn forever where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And friends, that's the sad lot for everyone who does not repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And we must be aware of this. God's wrath is being stored up in a cup, as it were, for the day of judgment. And the only escape, as we well know, is found in Jesus. The only escape is found in Jesus who took that cup of wrath and drank it for us on the cross. He willingly drank it for all who would believe. He took your place And he is your only escape. So what are you saved from? The eternal wrath of God. How can you be saved? How can you be rescued from this wrath? It's by calling on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that and more is what we will see today in our text from Joel chapter 2 as we take up part 2 of Joel's restoration of Israel that he talks about. We'll see that God rescues and blesses all who call on him for salvation. God rescues and blesses all who call on him for salvation. Turn to Joel chapter 2, verse 28, if you're not there already. And this is uh, certainly the most familiar passage in the book of Joel. But that's not because it's in Joel. You are probably familiar with this passage because it is in Acts. It is in the book of Acts. Peter at Pentecost Pentecost quotes this entire text in his sermon, minus the last half of verse 32. Now, many folks get ahead of themselves here and want to reinterpret Joel 2 in the light of Acts 2. But friends, we cannot do that. Joel wrote to Israel hundreds of years before Acts 2 came along. The meaning was fixed then, and God does not change, nor does the meaning of his text. Those present at Pentecost were not Joel's audience. And so proper biblical interpretation demands that we read every text in the shoes of the original recipients, trying to discern what the author meant when he wrote to them. And so we cannot let later revelation Uh, redirect some meaning in this text. Now, future revelation certainly may help us have a fuller understanding. It may help us have a fuller understanding of this text, but it cannot replace the meaning that is found inherently in this text. And so my plan for this morning is to exposit straight from Joel 2. We'll lift uh, our teaching straight from this text. And at the end, I will take us to Acts chapter 2 and see how Peter applies this passage for the church today. So that's where we're going. Joel chapter 2 I will start reading in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Joel 2, 28 through 32, the word of God reads, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls." Lord God, we just open this text before you this morning and ask for wisdom and grace as we look into it. God, help us to take away many great things from your word. God, may you drive us to always call on you, to always look to you, to always worship you, Lord. Bless us now as we look into this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, point number one, if you've got your notes there, I'll start right off right there. The promised revival, verses 28 and 29, the promised revival. Now, Joel begins this section with a clear and obvious time marker. He states, it will come about after this, after this. So whatever Joel is about to say about the Holy Spirit, it occurs after something. And so the key question is, what must occur first? What is this occurring after? And context is always king. So what's our context? We'll back up one verse to verse 27. We'll start there. It says this in verse 27, remember this from last time, thus you Israel will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. So the immediate context states that Israel will know God personally. They'll have dropped everything else and will be worshiping him alone, knowing he is present with them in their midst. At such a point, God's people will never again be put to shame. This occurs just prior to our text, verses 28 and 29. Now the further context, as we saw last time in Joel 2, 18 to 27, is this promise of restoration for the land, for the land of Israel. We had this locust plague back in chapter 1 that had attacked Israel, devastated the land, and God promises a restoration will follow their repentance. Right, A restoration will follow the nation's repentance. And we saw... Last time, this had an immediate aspect to it, a near mountain peak, if you will, in that God will restore the land of Joel's day from its present devastation. God would answer them in their repentance immediately. But we also saw a future aspect when we looked at this section. We saw a future aspect, a far mountain peak, in which God will ultimately restore the land's fruitfulness forever. He will remove all enemies from the land, and he will remove forever the reproach of Israel. That's what we saw last time. And in both these aspects, the immediate and the future, they were predicated upon the nation's repentance. As we saw in the white space between Joel 2.17 uh, and 18. Right? This evidently had to have happened between verse 17 and 18 for God to respond as such. They repented and their prayer of repentance we saw was in verse 17. So back now to verse 28. We have the context. This promise of verse 28 will happen when the nation of Israel repents. It will happen after or in tandem with the future restoration of the land and their reproach being removed, and they will worship God fully and know that he is with them in their midst. This is what must happen before we arrive at verse 28. And that that alone is evident from Joel. I don't need to look anywhere else. I'm not pulling from other scriptures to get this. Joel gives us these plain facts. And at the end of verse 29, another statement helps us out. He says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Referring again to a far off future time. In those days. 
Joel and his audience wouldn't know when exactly this would occur, but they knew all they needed to know. This was a promise for a future generation contingent upon that generation's repentance and renewed worship of Yahweh. It was a promise to them. It was a promise to this future generation. And friends, what a promise it is. Let's now consider this promise. Let's consider what God says to them. Think afresh on this for a moment. The verses say, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind or flesh, on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. God here has opened a window into heaven for Joel, and he gets to pass on this incredible news to a starving, beleaguered people. Not only will God restore our land, Joel says, but one day God is going to revive the heart of our entire nation. God is going to revive our hearts. In that future day, when God removes our reproach and dwells in our midst, he'll also do this, friends. He says he'll also pour out his spirit on us. Imagine that. Now, for us in, this, in our context, right, we have the Holy Spirit. We can't picture this, but in the Old Testament world, you have to understand how significant this is. Very few people were filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament era. The filling of the Spirit was given only to those whom the Lord chose for some purpose. Samson for strength, Bezalel for skill to create the tabernacle, David for godly leadership, prophets like Joel for prophesying. The common people were never indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Only if God specifically chose a person for some divine purpose would they receive the Spirit, and such instances were quite rare. In fact, when God poured out his Spirit, especially on two men in the days of Moses, Joshua became jealous for Moses' sake. He thought that only Moses was supposed to have this blessing of the Holy Spirit. Only Moses was supposed to have him. And so Joshua goes to him and asks him to, to, to make them stop. And Moses responds, this is Moses in Numbers eleven twenty nine. 29. Moses said to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That was Moses' wish for the spirit to be upon all the people of Israel. And now Joel is telling us that Moses' wish will one day be fulfilled. This incredible truth that God's people, God's nation, would receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 28 says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On all mankind, all flesh. They will all receive it. In the future economy of Israel, there is no difference between male and female, the text says. There's no difference between young and old. There is not even a difference in social class. The, the rich and the servants of the rich are all one and the same. The spirit will not just be for the elites, but he'll also be for every Israelite, down to the lowest servant girl. Like I said, to the Old Testament mind, this was a revolutionary concept. This was mind-blowing concept. That, that God's spirit would go to every person in Israel. And when we talk about pouring out, to pour out, to spill, this suggests that God holds nothing back. He, he first poured out rain on the land and blessing, verse 23, and after this, he will pour out his spirit, the ultimate blessing. God will pour out his spirit on Israel. 
Now we need to note, however, that this passage in Joel is actually not a promise that the Spirit would go to every human being on the planet, but to every Israelite. While the word all mankind or all flesh might at first look like a universal claim for all humanity, the context reveals it is not. And and I'm not unique in this position. Most commentators take this position, and we see this in a few ways. First, we see this is directed to your sons and daughters. That is clearly a a reference to the Israelites' offspring, their sons and daughters. Second, this entire oracle from God is bound up in God's compassion for his chosen nation. As as chapter 2, verse 18 tells us, it says, The Lord will be zealous for his land and have pity on his people. His people, not the people of the world, the chosen people of Israel. Third, nowhere in Joel are Gentiles spoken of favorably. This book is thoroughly pro-Jew in every way. And fourth, and most powerfully, I think we see Peter, the apostle Peter, was utterly shocked. He was dumbfounded in Acts, chapter, in Acts 10 and 11 when, the, when he realized that the Spirit would even go to Gentiles. Right? It took a threefold vision and Peter's personal witness of Cornelius' family getting saved and receiving the Spirit before he would wake up to the fact that God would actually send his Spirit to non-Jews. It took a lot. And so clearly Joel 2 is not saying that the Spirit is going to go out to Gentiles. That's not the frame of reference that Peter would have. And let me clarify what I just said in case anyone gets confused. That this passage, you'll notice, it does not exclude Gentiles, but it also does not explicitly include them either. So we're not excluded from this passage, but we're not included in it. This is for the Israelites. Coupled with the Spirit's filling of the Israelites, they get something to go with it. Uh, prophecies, dreams, and visions. This blessing of the Spirit on Israel comes with prophecies, dreams, and visions. And these will act as a testimony that the Spirit has been poured out on all people. Good time for a water break. These will act as a testimony that the Spirit has been poured out on all people. Dr. Irv Buzinitz comments, the context suggests that the primary purpose is to visibly demonstrate that Yahweh was dwelling in their midst and to depict Israel's new relationship toward him. And so what is most important here is not these, these prophecies, not these dreams and visions. They, they are pointers that the Spirit, in fact, has been poured out. What is most important here is the pouring out of the Spirit. You'll see how it, it bookends, verses 28 and 29. It starts out and it ends. I will pour out my Spirit. And I want you to hear two other similar passages, two other incredible passages of the Old Testament that speak to the same exact thing. Turn first to, turn to Ezekiel 36. Turn, this is the, the more, they're both very important. This is the more clear in our context. Ezekiel 36. And as you turn there, I will read from Jeremiah 31. I'm looking at two texts. I'll have you look at one yourself in Ezekiel 36. But Jeremiah 31, 31 verses and 33 to 34 says this. Again, you're turning to Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31 says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
Now, we don't have the Holy Spirit mentioned directly here in this text, but such promises of putting my law within them and writing it on their hearts and that they will all know me could not happen without the Spirit's work. It could not happen without the Spirit in them. Now, now look at Ezekiel 36. We'll be in verse 24 through 30. Verses 24 through 30. God says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the trees and the produce of the fields, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Friends, doesn't Ezekiel 36 sound a lot like Joel 2? We see a lot of similarities there in the, in the blessing promised. We see two parallel prophecies as well. That the Spirit is given. The Spirit is given, and Ezekiel makes it so clear. The Spirit is given that God's people may live holy lives before their Lord and King. That is why the Spirit is given. The prophecies and visions and dreams of Joel 2.28, they're not repeated elsewhere, not in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. They are but signs the Spirit is being poured out. What the Spirit comes to do, though, is to make God's people holy to make God's people a holy people. And friends, is that us this morning? Are we striving after holiness? Is that the key ambition of our soul? We have the Holy Spirit in us if we are in Christ. He has given his Holy Spirit revealed in the New Testament. And if the Spirit is in us, as he is in all Christians, holiness will be our ambition. What does 1 Thessalonians 3.3 say? The will of God for us is our sanctification. This is God's will for our lives. Our hearts are to be set on living for God and putting off sin. God's spirit drives us to holiness. And friend, if we have no motivation, if you have no motivation to live in a holy manner, to put off sin and to put on righteousness, then it's likely you do not have the Holy Spirit yourself. It is likely you have never honestly repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ Jesus. But on the flip side, if you do see in yourself an ever-increasing hatred for sin, an ever-increasing desire to live a righteous life before God, not to earn salvation, but out of thankfulness for salvation, then you can have great assurance the Spirit is in you. You can have great assurance of your salvation. Simply by contemplating the desires of your heart, you can see if you are saved. If they are Godward, holy, pure, then the Spirit is in you and you are God's child. And again, we've said this before, it's not about perfection, right? We're not perfect, it's about direction. What is the direction of your heart? Only the Spirit inside you will set you on an earnest path toward holiness. And if holiness is your earnest direction, you can have great confidence that God has saved you and be assured of your salvation that's what the Spirit comes to do, to make us holy. Now, such a great grace 
that we have experienced in Jesus Christ with his death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit on all believers, this was not yet palpable to the Jews in Joel's day. This was not yet palpable for them. The receiving of the Spirit was still afar off. And in fact, as a whole, Israel will still be awaiting the Spirit when the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord George is talking about. The Israel as a whole will still be awaiting that. Why? Because even to this day, as we look at the nation of Israel, they have continued to reject their Messiah. They have continued to reject their Messiah. And so today they, they spit on Jesus' name, they reject his claims of deity, they hold him in contempt, and the nation will continue to do the same thing for all the way up through the seven years of tribulation and right up to the final battle of Armageddon and the climax of the day of the Lord. And that's exactly where Joel goes next in verse 30. And here we see the pressuring rage. Point number two, the pressuring rage. We've got an unrepentant Israel in the context. We see here both the nation's rage and the Lord's wrath at the sinful earth. And this is going to put pressure on the nation of Israel and to turn them to Jesus Christ. God will use this to turn them. Look at verse 30. Here we have a stark contrast from verse 29. It's a drastic, drastic shift. It's as if the light, of, the light switch of mercy and grace from verse 29 has been turned off. Right? We've gone from blessing to judgment. And here begins a depiction of the judgment upon the wicked that will make up much of the rest of the book of Joel. But mixed in with the judgment on the wicked, we also see the deliverance of the righteous. Verse 32. And then again, we'll see it late in chapter 3. We have a new section here, and it says to, to kick things off, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth. There will be blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Now what do we have here? We've got signs on the sky above and on the earth below. On the earth, we've got blood, fire, columns of smoke. This put together depicts the sights and smells of war. God will leave dead and bloody troops, burnt armies and smoking rubble behind him when he comes. Zephaniah 1.17 states that the blood will be poured out like dust. Revelation 14.20 explains that blood will flow about four feet deep for 200 miles. Ezekiel 39 explains that it'll take seven years to clean up all the rubble from this battle. This will be all described much more fully in Joel chapter 3, so be sure to come back next week. And this is just what comes on earth. This is just the wrath of God revealed on earth. What about the heavens? In the heavens there will be great wonders. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Now it's not that the moon's going to literally become blood. Revelation 6.12 clarifies saying, The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. Becomes like blood in its appearance. Regarding the sky above, Zechariah adds in Zechariah 14:6 that in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. And so in both sky and land, the Lord will display his wrath. His wrath against sin will escalate to new levels, levels never before seen on earth. And verses 30 and 31 inaugurate and commence the final days of the seven years of tribulation. Now, Joel's readers are not privy to, to such details that are revealed in Daniel and Revelation about the seven years, but they are clearly aware now about the day of the Lord that's coming, this day of the Lord that's coming. 
The New Testament sheds a little bit more light on this timeline for us. Matthew 24, 29 reads, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so these celestial and terrestrial upheavals described by Joel will set off the final chapter of the day of the Lord, this final day. And Joel says it will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Before. Now, syntactically, this word before, if you see in your text, it says this happens before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. <clears throat> before can have a time sense in that it's it, talking about prior, but it also refer, can refer to a location, like when somebody is before God, that is in his presence. And he, here, so it's kind of, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about in the presence of God? Or are we talking about before God comes? And I think coupled with the verb comes, which is clearly there in the Hebrew, it seems to have a more of a, a time element to it, but definitely some kind of a very close proximity given our context here. And so this is not something that happens years removed from Christ's coming, but something that will happen just days or maybe even hours before Christ returns to vanquish his enemies. <clears throat> and all these cataclysmic events, all these things happening at once will put intense terror into the hearts of the people of Israel. As chapter three makes clear, there will be an army outside Jerusalem like none has ever seen before. And this army will actually attack Jerusalem itself and a large number of Jews would be killed, Zechariah 13, eight states. There will be these terrifying signs we've just spoken of in the heavens as well. The sun goes black, the moon goes to red. We've got 100-pound hailstones falling down, Revelation says at one point. And the sky itself will be rolled up like a scroll. Friends, we have no concept of such terror. We, we today have no way to grasp emotionally the agony and the terror of such events. What's going to happen? Men, strong men ready for battle, they will hide themselves in the rocks and the caves and ask for the rocks to fall upon them. Revelation 6.15 tells us, Jesus explains the sheer terror of this time in Luke 21, 25 to 26. He says, there will be signs in, sun, in, in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. End quote. That's Jesus for you. Men fainting from fear. And the people of Jerusalem, Joel's beloved city, they will be right in the thick of it, smack dab in the middle of it. And the wrath of God against the earth and the rage of the many nations attacking their home city will put tremendous pressure on their hearts. And for many, they will reach a breaking point. For many, their hearts will snap. And they will, for the first time, Seek God for who he truly is. They will deny themselves finally, lay down their pride and seek God for who he is. And what a glorious revival this will be. The Jews' hatred for Jesus Christ will melt away and God will open their hearts to finally, as a nation, meet their Messiah. At this time, God will reveal to them what they should have known all along, that Jesus Christ was their Messiah, that they murdered him on the cross at Calvary, and all the pain and disgrace they've been suffering throughout these thousands of years is because of their own stubbornness of heart, 
unwilling to bow the knee to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And for many of them, this time of ultimate disaster, this day of the Lord, Zechariah 12.10 tells us, they will look on me whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him. Zechariah adds, in that day, in this day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. God will wipe them away. The pressure of the rage of the nations and the wrath of God will lead Israel to plead for rescue. They will plead for rescue. And that's our third and final point, the plea for rescue. Look at them, Joel 2, 32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Joel promises to these Israelites that whoever calls in the name of Yahweh will be delivered, will be saved, will be rescued. Rescued from what? Saved from what? Wrath. The wrath of God. On the cover, we're talking first about physical salvation, physical deliverance. Those who call on Yahweh won't die in his wrath from the heavens or in the nation's rage. That's what the verse says. It says, there will be those people who escape the slaughter. There will be survivors of God's wrath in this day. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. But who will be the ones escaping? Only those who call on the Lord. Only those who call on the Lord. So physical salvation from death and wrath and the day of the Lord is the primary referent here. These will behold Christ in all his glory. Those who have called on the Lord will behold Christ in all his glory when he touches down again on the Mount of Olives. They will witness his destruction of the enemy in the battle of Armageddon next week and they will be ushered directly into the 1,000 year millennial reign with Christ to rule with him on earth. That's what physical salvation means at the last hour. But now ultimately, as one can plainly see, Joel is also talking about spiritual salvation. For one, on this last day, Jesus makes an end to all his enemies, to all unbelievers. If spiritual salvation is not in view, the Israelites would still be enemies of Jesus and he would wipe them out with the rest in his wrath. Now, furthermore, the phrase call on the Lord itself just has such spiritual overtones to it that we just we cannot miss the spiritual nature of this call, the spiritual effects of this call. Now, I need to clarify one thing. I just said that uh, all the unbelievers will be wiped out. I don't actually believe that to be the case. There will be still unbelievers issued into the millennium. The word of the gospel will go out to them from others. Um, so just to be careful theologically, let me add that to my notes here. Um, <clears throat> but all the unbelievers at Armageddon, at Jerusalem, will be wiped out. Now, what does it mean to call on Yahweh? What does it mean to call on Yahweh? It means to confess him as Lord. To confess him as Lord. Turning to him as one's master and worshiping him, even in the face of hostility. It's, quote, entering into intensive personal contact with Yahweh. Calling on Yahweh is essentially repentance and faith rolled into one word. In repentance, the Israelite owned their own sin of re- for rejecting God. They confessed it and turned from it to the living God. 
Simultaneously, the calling on Yahweh would include faith that he would deliver them from both the present disaster and the penalty that their sin deserved. It's a faith in Jesus that he truly is their Messiah. They would reject their former unbelief and place it all in Jesus Christ. To call on Yahweh for deliverance is genuine heart transformation at the fullest. At the fullest. And this is beautiful. This is a beautiful thing. See the grace of God in this rescue. See the grace of God in this rescue. And just think of your own life and what you've been rescued from and the grace of God that has touched you when he called you out of darkness to walk in light. Now, Joel concludes this verse with one more important statement. He says, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Wait, who's doing the calling? Do the Israelites call on God or does God call on them? And so here we see the sovereignty of God and salvation, that he has his elect, his chosen, all whom he calls will call on him. Now this ruffles our many in feathers, but it cannot be ignored. God has his elect within Israel, for not all Israel are Israel, as Paul said. Not all Israel will be saved and survive God's wrath and the nation's rage. In fact, Zechariah 13.8 tells us that two-thirds of Israel will perish. Only one-third will survive this battle. And so it appears that only one-third of the inhabitants of Israel in that day are God's elect. Only one-third will God call. And this one-third, this one-third that are saved, Zechariah 13.9 so beautifully explains this. Zechariah 13.9 tells us, And I will bring the third part... Referring to this third, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. God calls them, and they, in turn, call upon him. Israelites of the future, just like Israelites today and just like you and me today, we will be fully responsible if we reject Jesus Christ as Messiah. We will suffer the wrath of God for our rejection of him if that is us. But even this is in accordance with the sovereign plan of God. Were it not for God's call upon us or upon the people of Israel, none of us, none of them would turn to God for salvation. We praise God that he saves a third of them. We praise God that he saves you and me here this morning. We do not accuse God for not giving us all totally free will to be saved. If he had left us to our own free will, none of us would repent. None of us would turn. None of Israel would turn. God is at work in every salvation. Turn over to a few books to the right to Zephaniah chapter 3. It's a few small books to Zephaniah 3. I want you to see this. This is beautifully depicted in just a single verse. Zephaniah 3.9. Just consider the sovereignty of God in this verse, speaking of this exact same instance of Israel's salvation on the day of wrath. Zephaniah 3.9, I'll back up to verse 8 for context. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, All my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Verse 9. For then I, God, I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Do you see that? 
God will give them purified lips so that they may call on him. God purifies their lips and hearts by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit so that they may with new eyes see the Savior Jesus Christ and with new lips call upon him for salvation. God does it. God saves them. God puts it in the hearts of his people to plead for rescue. God rescues his people. He pours out his spirit upon them, redeems them, and opens a fountain of cleansing from sin and impurity. And in, re- in relation to Israel, how is this possible? On what basis? Just like for us, friends, it is still Jesus Christ. It is still Jesus Christ. God says in Zechariah 12.10 that in this day, this future day of the Lord, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Friends, they will look on him whom they pierced. God will save them. He will pour out his spirit upon them and their salvation will be found in Jesus Christ. And they will mourn they've missed their Messiah for so many years. And it's such a repentance that leads to this morning and such a repentance and the Messiah will save them. This nation of Israel. And friends, it is the same for you and me today. Though Joel is speaking of the day of the Lord, the application is true across history. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? From wrath, from the eternal wrath of God. Friend, call on the name of the Lord even this day and you will be saved. This salvation is not limited to only Israel but to us Gentiles as well. Romans 10, 12 to 13 declares, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes Joel 2.32. Who is the Lord that Paul speaks of? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh God. Friends, today we call on Jesus We call on him for salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only in Jesus. And so this is where we come to Acts 2. Peter picks up this wonderful, incredible text of Joel and quotes the entire thing as an opening illustration of the sermon at Pentecost. The floodgates of salvation are open in Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn to Acts 2. We'll finish here. Acts chapter 2, you know the story. The Spirit of God has fallen upon them at Pentecost. There's 120 believers gathered in one place and the Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking in tongues and people can hear the gospel now. They've been speaking in their own language. It's an amazing thing. And we'll pick up in Acts 2 verse 12. All the people around it says, and they all continued, Acts 2, 12, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then then Peter quotes Joel. And he does it to silence, first off, to silence the mockers. We're not drunk, he says. 
that's ridiculous. It's only 9 a.m., but more importantly, check out what Joel said. Now, interpretations here can go amiss. It's patently obvious that Peter is not saying our Joel passage has been fulfilled. He's not saying the prophecy is now fulfilled in their presence. It's clear Peter understood this, for he includes the part about the blood and fire, about the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood. Was that happening right then? Was that happening in Peter's day? By no means. Also notice that as soon as he's done after verse 21, having got their attention, he now speaks about Jesus. He, he drops the Joel passage and his sermon text actually becomes Psalm 16 and the resurrection of Christ. J. Vernon McGee rightly points out, Peter's text in this sermon is not Joel 2, it's actually Psalm 16. So what is Peter doing quoting Joel? Why quote Joel at such length? Two reasons. First, he's saying, stop your mocking, we're not drunk. Joel said God will one day pour out his spirit on Israel. And if he will do it in the day of the Lord, what's to stop God from doing it now? The pouring out that Joel says will happen then is happening already. God is acting consistent with his promise. So stop mocking. We are filled with the Spirit. We're not drunk with wine, Peter says. But the second reason to quote Joel 2, Peter wants to emphasize right out of the gate that God saves all who call on him. He doesn't stop quoting Joel after vindicating the Spirit. No, salvation through Jesus Christ is Peter's entire message. And so just as the Spirit is being freely given now by God, so will salvation be given freely to all who call on the Lord now. As Peter repeats, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And why is this so important for the Jews to understand? Because being a Jew is no longer enough to be saved. Remember before in the Old Testament, you simply had to have faith in the one God, be circumcised, follow the laws. Again, it was focused on faith, but something now has changed. Something now has changed. Circumcision was no longer of value. The one of whom the prophet spoke has now come, Jesus Christ. The Jews needed to realize that faith must now be placed in Jesus. Faith must now be placed in him, God in the flesh, and in his death and resurrection for their salvation. All the Jews of Peter's day must now call on Jesus for salvation. And that's what the rest of Peter's sermon will be about. The rest of this sermon is about this. Jesus is that Lord upon whom they must call, upon whom we must call. And he goes to Psalm 16 to prove it. And so Joel 2 is simply an opening illustration of what God can do in people. The rest of the sermon is what God has done in Jesus and what the Jews and we ourselves today, you and me, must now do in response. And so Joel 2 is applied to you and to me in the same way as to the early church. God is in the business of pouring out his Holy Spirit on his sons and daughters. God is in the business of saving everyone who calls on his son. Everyone who calls on his son. And I want you to see the response to this sermon. Look at verse 37 of Acts 2. The people were so pierced to the heart that they literally interrupt Peter in his sermon. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Do you see that? 
What must you do to be saved? Exactly what Joel has said all along. It's repent. Repent and turn to the Messiah. Again, we've mentioned it before, baptize is a subordinate clause. It's an outward sign that symbolizes the inward heart. It's all about repentance and calling on the Lord. Notice, notice Peter's message. It's in the name of who? It's no longer in the name of the Lord. God has clarified that for us. It's in the name of Jesus. Friend, do you wish to be saved from God's wrath? Do you wish to be saved from God's wrath? Then call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Forsake your sin. Turn to him with your whole heart. Place your entire trust in his death and resurrection for you. And you do that, Peter says, you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This applies to everyone. To everyone whom the Lord calls. There you see it again. Peter relates back to the Lord calling people. God calls. Friend, do you know if you're called? Do you know if you're called? Maybe you're like, I have no idea. I don't know what God, I don't know if I'm called. Look, if you call on God, he has already called on you. Prove that God has called you by calling out to him. Call out to him and escape his wrath. Call on Jesus this very instant and you will be delivered from the wrath to come. And not only that, you'll receive his spirit and he will guide you into all righteousness. What a blessing. Friend, God truly does rescue and bless all who call upon him for salvation. Amen? Amen. Let us, like Peter, then be ambassadors for Jesus, leading others to call on him as well. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, what a day that is coming for your nation Israel. What a day that you have set apart from all eternity past to rescue their nation from their idolatry, rescue your nation from their idolatry and, and bring them all into your fold. We'd love to see how you have brought so many into your fold already. Even in Peter's day, many Jews were saved. Even in our day, we see Jews saved and in one day in the future, all Jews will be saved, Lord God, and we look forward to that. God, we're so thankful that this applies to us as well, Gentiles. God, that your grace would be poured out, that your spirit would go forth, not just on the Jews, but on all people, Lord. For all of us who repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived and died for us. God, we are so grateful. We praise your matchless grace, and we sing about it all the time, Lord God, just how much you have done for us and your son, Jesus Christ. God, we extol you. We lift you up. Our hearts are full with this salvation, God. And I just pray for any in this room who may not have called on you, Lord, even at this hour, that they would turn to you, God, for salvation. Work in all hearts this morning, God. May no one in this room suffer your wrath, but may all know the full salvation and the blessing of the Holy Spirit that you pour out. God, we lift these things up to you, knowing you can do far more than we even ask. In Jesus' name, amen.